My father was perceived by me at a young age to be a very strict and harsh man. Many ways he was. He was strict. He was from the old school. He was raised during the time of the Great Depression. He was very conservative. He was very hardworking, and so he would impose certain rules based upon his background on us. And I didn't like it. Dad, you're old-fashioned, man. Get with it. You're square. He didn't care. It's my house. These are my rules. When you get your own house, you can have your own rules. And I didn't appreciate it. My dad was hardworking, and he could afford just about anything he wanted, but he didn't, and he wouldn't give anything to us. What I mean by that is when I turned 16 and got a driver's license, I wanted a car. My dad said, you can have a car. You've got to earn the money for it. Well, how am I going to drive to work to earn the money? Well, you, no joke. You've got a bicycle. You can pedal to work. Oh, come on. You, you can, you know, the Delators across the street. You know, she's 16. Her dad gave her a Porsche for Christmas. Now, I'm not asking for a Porsche, but, you know, some kind of a car. No. You can earn enough money by riding your bicycle to work. You can earn enough money to buy a motorcycle, used one. You can drive that to work. You can earn enough money to buy a used car. Now, that was his thinking. And I didn't appreciate his thinking because I wanted things just sort of given. My dad wouldn't do it. And he'd say, you know, you're going to appreciate this when you get older. You know, the lines that fathers give to their kids. And I just, you know, I, 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 I chafed under it. But I began to realize that he was a man of great principle and character, and there were certain things dear to his heart that he wouldn't compromise on. And he was doing it not because he didn't love us, but because he did love us. He wanted us to know the value of hard work. Now, later on, he was more gracious. Later on, he did give, gave me a truck. I brought it out here to New Mexico. It was a used truck, but he bought it, and I was able to make payments back to him, gave us money to get into our first house and second house, and really helped out a lot. But, you know, he had certain rules, and I see that they were based upon love. Now, every now and then, you'll find a character who will shake his fist to God and say, why do you give me all of these rules, God? You must be a harsh God, all of the laws we read about in the Bible. You must not love us very much. Nothing could be further from the truth. God gave the law to his people. One of the principal reasons is because he loved them. He cared for them. He was interested in their diet. He was interested in their personal relationships. They had just come out of Egypt. They were surrounded by idolaters. And God wanted them to learn how to follow him so that they could truly have a full life. And so God gave the law to his people. Now, you might be one of those persons. You don't like what you read in the Bible. You don't like God's program. You don't like the narrowness of the gospel. You don't like the fact that God said there's only one way to heaven. It's not fair. I don't like God's laws. Well, listen. Bottom line is you're living on God's planet. Now, when you can create your own universe and spin planets and stars into orbit and create lights for the day and the night. When you can do all that, you can create your own law. But until then, you're on his property. You're in his house. You're breathing his air. You're drinking in his sunshine. If you don't like it, it's not going to break him. You're going to hurt yourself. God has given you parameters out of love. Now, I want to say that because some of the laws we get into are very personal, but they're very pervasive. Though it's laws given to Israel in the Old Testament, there are some great principles that even Paul reiterates, especially in chapter 18, concerning purity and sexual morality. 
Now keep in mind, again, that the Israelites have freshly come out of Egypt. Now Egypt, they worshipped everything. In fact, they must have had some kind of an identity crisis in their worship system. They worshipped the gods of nature. Apis the bull was one of the gods they worshipped. Ra, the god of the sun. Heka, the frog god, was worshipped. Now I can't imagine bowing down in a pond and praying to one of those green critters and saying, Dear Lord, Ribbit. Also, we're going to see in this chapter, there's reference to Mendes, the goat god. Literally, in, down in verse 7, it's the hairy one. It's the god of the goat that uh, they worshipped in Egypt. And there was the tendency to bring that even into the land of Canaan for some reason. There's a commandment against that kind of idolatry. Uh, by the way, and it's more than trivia, goats have been worshipped from the time of Egypt through Assyria and through all the history of the Greek worship system. In fact, the Greeks worshipped the god Paneus. You can see a shrine in northern Israel to this day, the god Pan. He was depicted by the Greeks as having horns, a pointed tail, and cloven hoofs. During medieval times, Christians saw that as the embodiment of the devil, the Greek god Paneus, because he was against everything that stood for holiness and godliness. In fact, our word panic comes from the Greek Paneus, the worship of uh, the goat god. Verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now there's a couple of basic rules that are set out in chapter 17. Number one, all life is sacred, therefore you shall not eat the blood of any animal. And number two, whenever you worship, you don't worship any way you want to, you can't just go out and kill an animal wherever you want to, because you'll have the tendency, perhaps the temptation, to use that animal that was killed for false worship, because the Canaanites were renowned for that. So make sure that when you kill an animal, and this was at the very beginning of the worship system, you bring it to the tabernacle door. And you kill that animal in front of the Lord, is what it says here, before the tabernacle of the Lord, verse 4. Now later on you're going to see that God directs the children of Israel to build not only a tabernacle, but a temple in Jerusalem. And God tells them that is the place that you are to worship. You can't worship any place you want to. You can't decide, you know, I don't like this tabernacle. I don't like this particular church in Jerusalem. I'm going to go to one over here in Samaria you would be cut off from the people. Jeroboam tried that when the kingdom split. He said, oh, it's too far for the people in the north to go down to Jerusalem. Let's set up a couple of shrines here in Samaria and one in Dan. Let them worship there. Now, there was a prescribed place for them to worship. You may either want to write down or turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and look at a few verses, beginning in verse 3 of that chapter. God says, you shall destroy their altars. This is as they go into the land of Canaan. You shall break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his habitation and there you shall go. There you shall make your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. There you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So you can't just worship wherever you want to and whenever you want to. There was a prescribed place 
at this time in Jewish history. Do you remember in 2 Kings, Hezekiah is the king of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is being hassled by the king of Assyria, Shennacherib. And Shennacherib sends two of his officers, the Tartan and the Rabshakeh, two notable officers from his army, to Jerusalem. And they stand in front of the walls of Jerusalem by the upper aqueduct, by the pool. And they start talking to the king and to all the people who are sitting on the wall of Jerusalem. Basically, he tries to psych them out. He says, you guys ought to give up. You can't trust in Egypt. You can't trust even in the Lord your God. And you can't certainly listen to Hezekiah, your king, who, by the way, was a godly king. And they said to the people on the wall, If you say we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah in Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now what they were saying is this, your king has cut down God's altars and forbid worship in every place except Jerusalem. He's cut down the altars of your God. No, he didn't. He cut down the pagan altars or the altars that people erected to worship in whatever way they felt like they wanted to worship. Hezekiah came in and brought reform. He said, cut down those altars for God has prescribed one place. And so... These two gentlemen sent from, sent from Shennacherib said, You better give up. Don't trust in your king. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in your God because I'm going to wipe you out. Hezekiah broke down and he prayed before the Lord. And the story goes on to say that God protected Hezekiah and the people of Judah because of their obedience. Now verse 5. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in the open field that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priests and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord, the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and burn the fat for a sweet aroma for the Lord. Now again, this was all done, this commandment was given, because of their background. They came from an idol-worshipping country. And the Canaanites were also idol worshipers. And whenever they would eat meat, they would first sacrifice the animal to an idol. After sacrificing the animal to an idol, they would then fillet the animal and use the meat for food. So to protect Israel from going back into idolatry, he said, whenever you're going to kill an animal, bring it to the tabernacle door. It's to be done before the Lord. By the way, this is the background of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the controversy in Corinth, meat sacrificed to idols. Same problem. In the Greek city of Corinth, throughout all of the Greek empire, they would do the same thing. Before they would eat any meat, they would sacrifice the animal to an idol. They would leave the animal in the temple. The temple would fillet the meat, and the temple would become sort of like the local supermarket. Your best fillets and porterhouses were bought at the pagan temple. Now, this bothered certain young, weak Christians principally Jewish Christians, who were used to the prohibitions of meat and the idea of idolatry. And on the other hand, it didn't bother any of the Gentile converts. They, no big deal. There's only one true God. These really aren't true gods. You know, it's an animal. Animal's dead. It's good meat. Why let it go to waste? So it's been sacrificed to idols. Big deal. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and he sort of agrees with him. He says, you're right. It doesn't matter. We know there's only one true God. These idols aren't gods. It doesn't matter. But there are weaker brothers among you who get really uptight that you're eating this meat sacrificed to an idol. So because you love them, though it's okay for you to do it, don't do it. Because love will take precedence. Instead of just saying, man, I've got to have that filet. It's the best filet is down at that pagan temple. But because of love, you're to forego it. In verse 7, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. There shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Now the New Revised Standard Version translates it a little differently as I believe does the NIV. The New Revised Standard says, so that they may no longer offer their sacrifices for goat demons. Literally, hairy ones. 
Don't sacrifice to these hairy ones, these goat demons, to whom they prostitute themselves. In Canaan, there was the worship of the goat god, as it was also in Egypt. And since it was very prominent in Egypt, and now they're surrounded by another bunch of idolaters in Canaan, God says, again, sacrifice and kill the animal only at the tabernacle door. You shall say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. You see, in those days, you couldn't haphazardly worship God or existentially worship God. You couldn't say, well... There's certain laws of God I like and certain laws of God I don't like and I'm going to subtract the laws of God I don't like and take to myself the ones I do like and I'll sort of create my own style of worship. Because truth is relative. And it might be truth for you, but it's not truth for me. So I'm going to kind of disregard God's laws and do it my own way. That happened, by the way, in Israel in the time of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And because they started taking to themselves idolatrous styles of worship, God says, you like idolatry that much? Fine. I'll sell you as slaves into a nation whose whole system is built around idolatry, like Assyria and Babylon, until you've learned your lesson, that there's no place like home, and you'll come back home to the Lord your God, and the children of Israel did. Now, when the children of Israel came into Canaan, they saw things that they'd never seen before. Now, they were used to all sorts of idols in Egypt, all many false gods, but when they got into Canaan, there was a confusing system, depending on what period of history you entered into. Whenever the children of Israel would conquer a city or a city-state, they found that the people worshipped so many different kinds of gods in those places that the God of Israel, the true God, sort of got lost among them. And for background's sake, there were three principal styles of worship in the Old Testament in the land of Canaan. First of all, there was something that was called polytheism. Most of you know what that is. It's the worship of many gods. The Canaanites believed in the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the stars, the God of the lakes, the rivers, the sea, fire, wind, everything. And often those gods would compete against each other for worship of men. And so man was busily trying to placate every single god. You don't want to make any of them mad. So you want to cover all of your bases. That was the worship system of ancient Babylon, ancient Assyria, ancient Greece, and so forth. And today it's very prevalent over in nations like India where there's hundreds of thousands of gods, millions of gods. There's sort of a population explosion in Hinduism among the gods. They're everywhere. Everything's a god. Another worship system that confronted them in the land of Canaan was something known as pantheism. It comes from two Greek words, panta and theos. That is, everything is God. The universe and God are the same thing. God is impersonal. We're all a part of God. And it's sort of the same philosophy as the new age today. I'm God, you're God, the tree's God, the mountain. We're all a part of the divine essence. That's pantheism. It's existed from ancient pagan times even to today. It's pure paganism. Another worship system prevalent in the time of the Old Testament in Canaan was something known as henotheism, which is really, it was interesting. It had a twist to it. It sort of evolved. Henotheism was the belief in local gods. Sort of like when we used to surf in Southern California. If you weren't a local and you tried to surf, if they found your um, car parked out, let's say you were from San Bernardino and you tried to surf down in Encinitas, they'd see your San Bernardino license plate and they'd destroy your car. You're not a local. You don't belong here. Or if it said Huntington Beach, go back to Huntington Beach, they'd rip your car. You have to be a local to be there. And so the, you, you know, surfers would often bypass that by trying to find uh, license plate holders from the local area, have 10 or 20 of them, and just put them on their license plate whenever they go to that local area. 
Now, henotheism was the belief that every territory had its own god, its own local deities. And when there was a battle between nations or cities, it was really a battle of gods, and the strongest god won. Now, the problem with this is that whenever a prince married a princess from another kingdom that believed in other gods, she would bring her gods with her, and eventually it would be polytheism. It happened with Solomon, didn't it? It says that he loved many foreign women, and they all brought their gods and turned his heart away from the Lord God to worship all of these false gods and brought the nation of Israel down into idolatry. And then King Ahab did the same thing, married a Sidonian woman named Jezebel. And what was the god that she worshipped? Baal. The god of fertility and all of the sub-Baals, the gods and goddesses of fertility. And it was a debased form of worship. They would worship through sexual promiscuity. A man would join himself to a prostitute. And as he was copulating with her, he would be praying, even as productivity is taking place and life is taking place right now, I pray, O Baal, that my crops would be fruitful, my animals would be fruitful, my family would be fruitful. And debased sexual immorality was often combined in all of these pagan systems. So God says, you're fresh out of idolatry, do it this way. Don't worship any way you feel like it. Verse 10. And whatever man of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Now you'd say, would anybody want to eat blood? Now I hear that over in England, though I've never tried it, there is something called blood pudding. Is that right? Now is it actual blood? Somebody told me it was. I can't imagine developing a taste for that. But the prohibition is because of the worship system and the background. The ancient Canaanites would eat or drink the blood of animals because they believed that the same characteristics or traits of the animals would somehow be imputed to them if they did. The strength of an ox, the speed of a gazelle. That they would take on those characteristics by eating the blood. God says they'll be cut off from among his people. For the life of the flesh, verse 11, is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. Life was sacred. Blood gave life. Therefore, blood was sacred. And blood was not to be taken frivolously. It was not to be eaten. It was to be used for atonement. And verse 11 is one of the most important verses in all of the book of Leviticus. Because of this, the Jews have meticulously sought to drain the blood of any animal that they slaughter. And there is a method called the shechita, which is the full, complete drainage of the blood of an animal. You drain the animal completely as you could, then you'd wash the animal as completely as you could, and you'd salt the animal to bring out or extract any excess blood. It was a, it's, it's the kosher way of being able to eat an animal, is draining it thoroughly with blood. But verse 11 is one of the key verses of the scripture. It's the basis for all sacrifices. As the scripture says, blood makes atonement. And here we see the principle of substitution. You're going to take an animal. You're going to lay your hands on that animal. Guilt will be transferred to that animal and you're going to kill it. And its blood is going to be shed. And that animal will be a substitution for you. And atonement will be made for your sins. As Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. Now I've got to say that this is the weakness of modern Judaism. They have no temple. There are no sacrifices. Every year on Yom Kippur, it's different from chapter 16, Yom Kippur in the Old Testament and throughout their history where there was sacrifice given and blood sprinkled upon that tabernacle. Today it's a day of reflection. You think. You consider your life. And you try to, in your mind, 
weigh all of the bad deeds you've committed that year and outweigh them by all of the good deeds that you've done. But as I read Leviticus and other portions of scriptures, God never said one thing about reflecting on that day, but that blood must be brought to atone for their sins. So then you ask, okay, if they have no animal sacrifices, if they're not making restitution for their sins by a vicarious atonement, what do they do? They reflect. Basically, they are approaching God on their own righteousness. I've been a good boy this year. I hope I've been good enough that God will accept me. And so I'm going to think and I'm going to reflect and I'm going to make promises to God on the Day of Atonement. But the blood hasn't been shed. Now, their own Bible denounces that. Their own testament speaks against that. God said to Isaiah, all of your righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. So can you understand why Paul the Apostle, in the book of Romans, chapter 10, said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I want them to be saved. They're so zealous for God. But they're zealous for God without any knowledge of what God expects. They're trying to come on their own goodness, their own righteousness. And some of them are very good. Some of them are very wonderful, very moral. But their approach is, I'm going to be good and God will accept me based upon my own goodness. But blood must be shed. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And whatever man of the children of Israel or of the stranger who sojourn among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of the flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats of it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what died naturally or was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe with water and shall be unclean till evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. These animals killed in that fashion would not have the blood adequately drained from them. Thus, they'd be unclean. So if you eat of them, it's okay, you're eating food, but you're unclean. Until a certain time has passed, then you can enter back into fellowship. Now, put yourself in the mindset of the ancient Jew. And as you do, contrast that with the coming of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. Year after year, seeing all of those animals killed, slaughtered, blood sprinkled, over and over again with no end in sight. In one sense, it's gratifying. Oh, man, my sins are washed away. feels so good. The Day of Atonement has passed. Blood has been sprinkled upon the mercy seat. But on the other hand, it's very frustrating because it's endless. When will it ever end? Max Lucado, in one of his books called Six Hours, One Friday, imagines what it would be like to have been a shepherd at the time of Christ, thinking this very thought. He puts it this way. To the casual observer, there was nothing unusual about those six hours. To the casual observer, this Friday, this is Crucifixion Friday, was a normal Friday. Six hours of routine, six hours of the expected, six hours, one Friday. Enough time for a shepherd to examine his flocks. Six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Six hours filled with, as are all hours, the mystery of life. The bright noonday sun casts a common shadow for the Judean countryside. It's the black silhouette of a shepherd standing near his fat-tailed flock. He stares at the clear sky, searching for clouds, but there are none. He looks back at his sheep. They graze lazily on a rocky hillside. An occasional sycamore provides shade. He sits on the slope, places a blade of grass in his mouth. 
He looks beyond the flock to the road below. For the first time in days, the traffic is thin. For over a week, a river of pilgrims has streamed through this valley, bustling down the road with animals and loaded carts. For days, he has watched them from his perch, though he couldn't hear them. He knew that they were speaking a dozen different dialects, and though he didn't talk to them, he knew where they were going and why. They were going to Jerusalem. They were going to sacrifice those lambs in the temple. The celebration strikes him as ironic. Streets jammed with people, marketplaces full of the sounds of the bleeding of goats and selling of birds, endless observances. But the people relish the festivities. They awaken early and retire late. They find a strange fulfillment in the pageantry, but not him. What kind of a god would be appeased by the death of an animal? Oh, the shepherd's doubts are never voiced anywhere except on the hillside. But on this day, they shout. It isn't the slaughter of the animals that disturbs him. It's the endlessness of it all. How many years has he seen the people come and go? How many caravans and how many sacrifices? How many bloody carcasses? Memories stalk him. Memories of uncontrolled anger, uncontrolled desire, uncontrolled anxiety. So many mistakes, so many stumbles, so much guilt. God seems so far away, lamb after lamb, Passover after Passover, yet I still feel the same. He turns his head and looks again at the sky. Will the blood of yet another lamb really matter? Well, in one sense, no, it won't. But in another sense, yes, it will. Because on that Friday, on those six hours, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, was being slain on a hill outside of Jerusalem, which meant an end to all of those sacrifices. Yes, there is no temple. There are no sacrifices today. Because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. So if a person believes in the Lamb of God to take away his sins, he will expiate their sins once and for all. That's the gospel of grace through faith. That's the good news. That's the contrast. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's a new covenant. It's a New Testament based on the Lamb of God, and it's once for all. That's the good news. Now we get into Leviticus 18. And it's really a special section we're entering into. 18 through 20 narrows things down from the public arena to the private arena. Chapter 17 is sort of a hinge. All of the chapters up to chapter 17 deal with public celebration, public sacrifice, uh, public convocations. Chapter 17 transitions, and now chapters 18 through 20, the law is applied to personal morality. In chapters 18 and 19, in chapter 20, penalties for violating God's standard of morality. You've got to understand that what God was doing with the nation of Israel, besides giving them the law, is wanting them with the law to be representatives to all of the world. This is God's standard. This is God's light. You are to be different from all the other nations, and I want all the other nations to see that. But because Israel left, that place of being a light to the nations and fell steadily, step by step, into idolatry. The Bible says that the Gentiles looked at the Jewish nation and because of their sin and idolatry, the children of Israel caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God. What does that mean? It means that the Gentiles looked at the sins of the Jewish nation and their idolatry and said, well, they're no different than us. You know, they call themselves God's people. They're monotheistic. They believe in one God. But there's no difference. They're sinning just like we are. There's no change in their life. Now, there's a big lesson for us. Sometimes Christians will get upset. Why does the Bible set the standard higher for believers? Why can't I divorce and marry anybody who I want to whenever I want to? It seems like the standard's higher. You bet it is. Is there forgiveness? You bet there is. But God will enable you to live the kind of a life that he prescribes, that life of holiness that he mentions. Verse 1, and really, it starts out right. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You know that that's mentioned in chapters 18 to 26 times. I am the Lord your God 42 times. So God is saying, Before I tell you anything personally, I just want you to know, I'm God. Enough said. It's sort of like my dad. Well, Dad, why? Because I'm your father. Okay, enough said. Your dad, you were here first, you made the rules, this is your house. I am the Lord your God. Everything I'm about to tell you hinges upon my character. And as the Lord your God, not just the Lord God, but the Lord your God, I have a relationship with you, I love you. It's mentioned 42 times in those chapters, chapters 18 through 26. I am the Lord your God. And that's mentioned not only in Leviticus, but so often in the Bible. God just announces to them. Now, the biblical writers never grappled or wrestled with the concept of the existence of God. They just knew that God existed. In fact, they said, it's the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. Only a fool would try to live apart from the commandments and regulations of God. A person who tries to live their own way apart from God is a fool. In fact, it's been wisely said, you never really break God's commandments. You can violate them, but they'll break you. You're not going to change them. God's standard never changes. You might not like it. You might not accept it. And you're a free moral agent. You can do anything you want. But by your violation of them, you're not going to break them. They're still true and righteous as is God. So I am the Lord your God. Now as we get into this chapter, God gets real personal. Very personal. And we're going to get into some things tonight that in our society are just seen as the norm. And we ought to be open to them. And we ought not to be so narrow-minded and so fuzzily fundamental that we aren't so inclusive of other peoples with different genetics and different mindsets. After all, this is the 20th century, and we're approaching a new millennium. And so we're going to sort of rewrite the Bible and rewrite biblical history to suit our own style. But in these chapters, we're going to read about some of what God would call disgusting sins. Incest being the predominant one in this chapter, which, by the way, was a way of life for Babylonians and Egyptians. They had just come from Egypt, and they were used to seeing that kind of flagrant sexual promiscuity, which sort of interests me because, you know, people today talk about the sexual revolution. Well, it's a new day, and we're experimenting in new ways. Listen, it's as old as the hills. They did that stuff in Egypt. It's no big new thing that you're trying. They tried it then, and it was condemned by God then. Now... We live in a day and age when we're fighting against a very strong tide called Hollywood. The movie industry seeks to bring a message to this country. All of the things that God says are disgusting, Hollywood tries to say, you should accept them. It's the norm. In fact, if you don't accept them, you're weird, man. You're abnormal. You're the enemy. It is estimated that the average American watches in one year, just watching television as an average American, he will see on the screen 9,236 sexual acts or implied sexual encounters. Implied by television in one year. 81% are portrayed outside of marriage. With that kind of a percentage, what Hollywood is saying is it is normal to fool around, to play around, to live together, to commit adultery, on and on and on. Now what that means roughly is that if you're a teenager between, well, let's, see, let's say you start watching television at age 10, which would mean that you'd be living basically in a cave until the time you're 10 because most kids start younger. By the time you're 18, in 10 years, you'll have viewed 93,000 
implied acts of sex on the television screen, 72,900 will be extramarital or premarital. Now, keeping that in mind, you're going to tell me, that stuff doesn't affect me. I can watch it, it doesn't affect me. It proves that you're insensitive to it and you ought not to be. Woe unto a society that can sit, sit there and be completely insensitive to it and even recommend movies. Oh, hey, man, it's a great film. I've had certain movies recommended. I'll go see them and I'll go, they recommended that. That was a filthy movie. Oh, I, you know, I didn't even notice that. I forgot about that. Desensitized, perhaps, to it. Let's get into the text. Verse 3, According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwell, you shall not do. And there's a good principle that I think is pervasive even to the century in which we live. And according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You see God's heart? I want you to really experience fullness of life. You really want to live? Hey, I created life. If you want to live, here's the parameters. Walk in them, children of Israel. Just because everybody's doing it, you ought not to be doing it. Just because everybody in Egypt and everybody in Canaan is doing it, you're going to feel a little bit left out. You're to be different. Now, in the New Testament, the Bible calls this sanctification. Holiness. That's a word that isn't mentioned much these days. It's funny how groups will talk about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Well, he's called the Holy Spirit to make you like him, holy. Verse 6, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The idea here is not indecent exposure. It's incest. In fact, the NIV translates it. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relationships with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relationships with her. You say, well... Now, that's sort of obvious. God doesn't have to mention that, does he? Sure he does, because in Canaan and Egypt, they did this. And so it was forbidden. Now, verses uh, 6 through 18 amplify basically the seventh commandment of not committing adultery, and he applies it to different cases. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. Now this is incest that God is speaking about. Sexual relationships with someone in the family. In this case, the mother. As disgusting as that sounds, that was exactly the sin of the church of Corinth, you remember. That a man had his father's wife. And the church of Corinth had become so insensate to this because they lived in a very immoral place. They didn't do a thing about it. And Paul says, you know what you ought to do? You ought to kick that person out of your church. I'll read it to you in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You shouldn't tolerate it. You should put the person out. It's going to infect the rest of the body for a little leaven. Leaven's a whole lump. In verse 10, the same rule of incest applies to grandkids. In verse 11, mom or stepmom in that case. Verse 12, your father's sister, that's your aunt. And also in verse 13, your father's brother in verse 14 or the uncle. Verse 15, daughter-in-law. In verse 16, your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Verse 17, you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin to her, it is wickedness. Nor shall you take a woman as rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. 
Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. Now, what commandment is that? That's the seventh commandment. It's the amplification and the personal detail of the seventh commandment, which comes out of Exodus 20, and he simply applies it to all these different areas. And what God is doing is basically this. He is taking the family unit, one man, one woman, and their kids, and setting that apart and placing a fence of protection around it. Because God established it. I want it protected. I want it seen as holy. I'm going to give you a wife. You're to love her. You're to honor her. You're not to commit adultery. And keep in mind, balance all of this out with the basic truth that God is not down on sexual relationships. He invented sex. And I'm sure that Adam, when Eve was brought to him, Adam thought it was a great idea. Adam, I want you to go to sleep. I've got a surprise for you. And he woke up. And the Bible says God brought the woman to the man. And Adam looked and said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And you, you read that and you think, That doesn't sound that romantic. But in the original Hebrew, it's an exclamation. You could translate it. In fact, the Living Bible says, Adam looked at her and said, This is it. In other words, Wow, right on, God. Good job. He noticed that she was different, and he liked the differences. She was soft. She was beautiful to behold. She was so different from him. And there was that attraction. And that's what God established from the beginning. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined into his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was God's pattern established. Now there is that myth, that legend, that says God and Adam were having a talk one day, and as they were talking, Adam had a few questions that he brought before the Lord. He didn't quite understand how God made the woman different and said, God, why did you make this woman so soft? You know, I'm so harsh and hairy, and you made her so soft and warm. Why did you do that? God said, I made her that way so that you would love her. And God, why did you make her so beautiful so that when I look upon her, I'm just taken by her beauty? Again, Adam, I, I did that so that you would love her. Well, God, come here. I don't want her to hear this, but why did you make her so stupid? God said, I made her so stupid so that she would love you, Adam. Of course, we know that's not in the Bible. It's simply a legend. In fact, what it says in the Bible is God brought the woman to complete the man. Because God realized that man by himself was incomplete and needed fulfillment and needed balance and needed something that he couldn't achieve on his own. And to take care of that aloneness, God brought that beautiful creation. In fact, sort of to balance out that story, there's another legend that says God first made Adam and looked at him and said, I think I can do better than that. And so he made a woman. Of course, that's not as, quite as true either. But now back to verse 20. God is putting that fence around his original plan of marriage. One man, one woman for one lifetime. And he says, You shall not lie carnally or have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. Now we live in a day and age when adultery is not all that uncommon. It's become sort of the norm. As the old song goes, If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Whoever's around, free love. In a shocking poll about habits of Americans, the pollster said, quote, almost a third of all married Americans, a third, have had or are now having an affair. This isn't a number from Hollywood or New York. The national average for adultery is a third. Today, the majority of Americans, 62%, think there's nothing morally wrong with the affairs that they're having. Once again, we hear the rationalization that everybody is doing it. Now, you might think, well, that's just a problem in the world. Time magazine released some statistics. They said among those who label themselves as very religious, 
31% have had an affair. That's about a third. Christianity Today polled 1,000 people at random. 23% admitted to committing adultery. 45% said they acted in an inappropriate sexual manner to someone of the opposite sex. That's a Christianity Today poll. And we see that it's fatal relationally. Personally, for the family, for the body of Christ, and specifically against God. Verse 21, you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, you shall, nor shall you profane the name of your God. And again, I am the Lord. Let me tell you about a habit or a practice that had taken place in Canaan. There was a Phoenician god named Molech. And the Ammonites developed a practice. They found the god of Phoenicia. They brought him sort of into their culture, sort of henotheism and polytheism as it evolved. And they would take a statue made out of metal, iron, about this big, 16, 18 inches, 2 feet tall. And Molech was seen as this little upright god with his arms stretched out and his hands upright. I have some pictures of it in some archaeology magazines in my office. They would put Molech in fire, in in red-hot stones and coals, and they would light a fire around the statue until it became almost white-hot. And some of them actually took their newborn babies and placed their babies on the arms of Molech as it burned to death. It was part of their worship system. And you might say, well, God is so strict with his laws. Listen, some of the kings of Israel fell into this practice, as did some of the Israelites later on. One has only to read Jeremiah chapter 7, where God said, For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. They have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, there to the north of Jerusalem, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come in to my heart. God says, I don't want that kind of sacrifice. I don't want to destroy life, but to preserve it. Verse 22 You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. And notice it says it is an abomination. How plain does it have to be? And when will people stop being afraid to call it what it is? It's very plain. Yet again, there are those who are telling us homosexuality isn't a sin. Now, the original text and the distort and twist the text It is all over the Bible. You cannot escape it. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. It's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. And yet, the facts are here in our country. Troy Perry, who started the Metropolitan Gay Church, there's one in this town down the street, by the way, has 25,000 members. 158 churches have begun in seven different countries It's gotten so bad that even the Quaker Church, might be hard to believe, but the Quaker Church in the United States released a statement that homosexuality is no more abnormal than being left-handed. Now, when the monkeys are running the zoo, you know you're in trouble. When God's own people are so afraid of any ridicule of not being politically correct, of not making a stand. Now, I don't want to go on a tirade against one particular thing, one particular sin. Homosexuality is a sin. It's not in the genes. I've gotten all the articles. I've spoken to as many experts as I can. It's been thought to have been in the genes. There's a couple guys who have tried to research it, and it's not conclusive at all. In fact, it's so inconclusive. But articles have been written, and that, oh, well, you see, and there's a gene for it, and it's not by choice, and uh, we need special rights and so forth. But it's not only that, but so is adultery. It's just as flagrant a sin. Heterosexual sin, adultery, is also sinful. I mean, this is just one of the things that God says not to do. And yet today it's being said that it's all right. But 
Romans chapter 1, there's a lot to be said on this, but Romans chapter 1 says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. And listen carefully to the text. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty for the error which was due. And notice the wording there, burned in their lust for one another. It is observed by the medical community that when a person does involve himself in homosexuality, there is an unusual amount of burning lust. I want to read a report to you by a medical doctor. He's the former coroner of New York City, Dr. Milton Halpburn. And he's not a Christian. He is not a Christian. He is a secular coroner. He wrote a book after retiring, and he said, quote, I did 60,000 autopsies. And I am not one to make a judgment on lifestyles, but I would warn anyone who chooses a homosexual lifestyle to get ready for the consequences. In 60,000 autopsies, he said, I can take one look at a corpse and tell you if it was killed by a homosexual. Because of the massive mutilations, I don't know why, it is so, but it seems that the violent explosions of jealousy among homosexuals far exceeds those of the jealousy of a man for a woman, or a woman for a man. The pent-up charges and energy of the homosexual relationship simply cannot be contained. When the explosive point is reached, the result is brutally violent. But this is the normal pattern of these homosexual attacks, the multiple stabbings, the senseless beatings that obviously must continue long after the victim dies. When we see these brutal multiple wound cases in a single victim, we just automatically assume we are dealing with a homosexual victim and a homosexual attacker. Not a Christian, a secular coroner with that report. A physician who has examined 60,000 corpses. I would say we should listen to a person like that. Now, what you're hearing on the news is the hate crimes by those who will not accept homosexuality as an alternate lifestyle, just like you're left-handed or right-handed. It's a hate crime. And then there are those violent attacks of, like what you've heard, the Marines who went into the bar, and those are reprehensible, should never be done. I'm ashamed that those would ever happen. But at the same time, though I don't excuse any of that, you never hear of such reports of the violence of a homosexual against another homosexual, where there's even more violence, more pent-up energy, more jealousy, more hate crimes among themselves, burning with lust one for another. God says it's an abomination. At the same time, it's forgivable. And we should be the first to with open arms announce the good news of Jesus Christ to anyone in any sinful condition, that God is a God of love. God loves us the way we are, but he loves us too much to keep us the way we are. God will forgive, and God can and will change any person who comes to him, no matter what the offense, no matter what the background. We should be quick to share the love and forgiveness of Christ, the grace of God. Verse 23, in the same context, nor shall, you, nor shall you mate with any beast to defile yourselves with it, nor shall any woman stand before a beast to mate with it. It is a perversion. You know, it sounds disgraceful to even mention it, but even this was common among some of the pagans who went from immorality with the Baals a sexual kind of a worship system. And at each turn, it just got lower and lower and more debased. They pushed the envelope so that anything was accepted in those cultures. And so God had to bring it out. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I will punish. I will visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. In other words, the land will be so sick of the perversion and corruption that it won't be able to contain the people anymore. Remember sort of 
the same thought. Jesus said as he was coming down the Mount of Olives. He said, if these disciples hold their peace, even the rocks are going to cry out. There's a point where even creation groans in glory or groans because of the sin of the inhabitants of its place. When a nation gets this bad, it can reach, I believe, a point of no return. Where God just says, enough is enough. You're going down. There's no return. There's no hope. It's going to crumble and fall, as did the nation of Israel. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. You shall not commit any of these abominations. (coughs) Pardon me. Either any of your own nation or any stranger who sojourns among you, for all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. So he keeps reminding them of this. I am God. I am the Lord your God. This is my covenant. You are my people. I delivered you out of Egypt. You're mine. I own you. I love you. I want you to live. Don't do like the nations around you. Now that's the big principle for us to go home with tonight. It's a principle found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yeah, but if, if I get too serious a Christian, somebody might mock me. I don't want to stick out too much. Hey, if they mock you, you're in good company. They mocked your Lord. They crucified him. They mocked Peter, Paul, John. Martyrs were slain by the Romans in the second through the fourth centuries. You're in good company. Now, should you deliberately be obnoxious? God forbid. You should lovingly, graciously, but firmly share the truth. And when they say, you hate us, it's hate crime. No, I love you. And I'm willing to even be mocked by you at this point to tell you the truth. God can change you. God can forgive you. Now, I can almost guarantee that because I've touched on this subject, and I touch on things as the Scripture touches on, I don't go out of my way to attack any kind of topic or get on a hobby horse. I just take it expositorily. But I'll guarantee you, because this is shared in a public arena, because this goes over the radio, some letters will come. I want you to know I've thought about it. I've calculated all of that in advance. Let them come. They've come before. I don't care. I would much rather know that I preach the truth, declare the truth, live the truth, and get the truth to others than what somebody thinks of me on this earth. I've got God to face. There's all of eternity, even if I'm hated, ridiculed, and scorned forever on this earth. In comparison to eternity, does it matter? Well, that's radical. Would to God that there be more radical Christians. Jesus said, marvel not if the whole world hate you. It's funny, some of the people that have gone up to Santa Fe in the roundhouse to oppose the special rights. Now, I think that if you want to be a practicing heterosexual or homosexual, that's your, it's your choice. But then for me to give you tax money for special rights, now nah, that's a different issue. You don't fit into the same category as those who are born a certain race, who have been underprivileged, need help for certain reasons. But when they were up there, as they would walk through the halls, 
and not say anything but just keep their demeanor and smile as they were going through, those that opposed them from the homosexual community would sneer at them and hiss at them and say things to them. And yet they would stand up and say, these Christians that hate us, hello, who's home? Now, that's going to happen. We're called to love all men. We're called to love them enough to tell them that all men are sinners apart from Christ. And that Jesus can forgive the sin of adultery, a person caught in pornography, a person caught in homosexuality, or a person even involved, as it says here, in bestiality. That's sinful. But God loves you, God can forgive you, and God can change you. And we'll be the first ones to embrace you in that and to help you through it.